Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine what it would have been like when the bones were in there. The place would have been filled with the smell, the stench of death. In this week's podcast, I'm taking you to a place where our ancestors walked with the spirits, where people came to gather, to celebrate and to commiserate, filled with skulls, long bones and other human remains. A powerful building, aligned east to west, that makes the hairs of the back of your neck rise as you crawl inside. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last podcast, you took us to the Lake District and the invention of heaven itself. Where's the next stop on our journey? Well, we're travelling south to a place that, after 5,000 years, still has the presence to enthrall. It's one of the largest and most striking tombs in the whole of the British Isles. It's West Kennet Longbarrow in Wiltshire. It sits up on a a ridge of high ground so it's on a kind of a ridgeway so when you're when you're when you're at west kennet you've got a, a view of the surrounding landscape technically from an archaeological point of view it fits into a set of tombs called the cotswold severn group uh, archaeologists for a for hundred years and more have enjoyed cataloguing things grouping things together seeing similarities of form and, and clumping them. It, it's quite a kind of a, you know, there's a kind of an autistic side to archaeologists, I think. It's the same sort of uh, motivation for alphabetising your, your DVDs and your books and everything. It's a, they, want, they want neatness. And so they decided that there were around 200 chambered tombs in the west of Britain, in England, uh, that were similar enough to one another to merit being clumped. So it's called the Cotswold Severn Group. And within that group, West Kennet is definitely the best. It's definitely the most famous. It's the biggest. It's the most spectacular. It's like the, it's like the iconic Cotswold Severn tomb. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a joy to behold. You're down in a part of um, the landscape, which for me as a Scottish person uh, is quite exciting anyway, because it's very different to the landscape that I'm used to, say, in the part of Scotland that I live in. You're down amongst the chalk. 
you're down where the if you scratch beneath the grass, uh, you come down onto white chalk bedrock, and it, it adds a, a different atmosphere and a different look. It's a it's a gentler landscape. It's more rounded, look flatter than I'm used to. So I get quite a kind of a buzz of excitement just from being in that part of England because it's quite different and it, and it inspires all sorts of thoughts and imagination for me. So West Kennet is this spectacular tomb. Uh, if you arrive at it, what you see is a long, elongated triangle, a grassy bump in a, an elongated triangular shape. Uh, but within it, what you've got is a, a mound built of this white chalk. It's In the intervening centuries and millennia, grass has grown over it. But when the tomb was in use as a tomb, it would have been white. It would have been this bright white mound on the on this ridge of high ground. So you'd you'd have seen this from from miles around. There's all sorts of theories about what the tombs were for. You know, obviously in part they were for containing some of the dead, but they probably did other things as well. In the same way that a church or a cathedral does more than just host funerals, uh, these tombs. Pr- would certainly have represented a lot more. Some people think that these tombs are sitting on old trackways uh, where people would maybe have been in the habit of uh, moving their their herds of cattle, their flocks of sheep, or just moving through the landscape. There would have been ancient trackways. And it it seems reasonable, you know, it's it's, uh, demonstrable in terms of of the evidence that some of these tombs seem to be maybe pointing the way along some of these old trackways. Other archaeologists other times have said that uh, it's territorial, that people are stamping a bit of ownership on the landscape and that at the time the best way to do it might have been to uh, gather together the bones of some of your ancestors, keep them in a tomb in a highly visible location. It's like a declaration, we are here, this is ours and we can lay claim to this place because our ancestors were here before us and they cleared these fields and they worked here and lived here and died here. So this is our patch. When you go to West Kennet, you're, you're, you definitely get the sense that you're visiting a sacred building. Uh, it's, it's good to think about them in terms of a church or a cathedral, actually. Uh, there, there are good parallels because people go to church and go to cathedrals, or, or they certainly did in the past, for all sorts of reasons. A bit of quiet contemplation, uh, for a marriage, uh, for a christening of a, of a baby, for a funeral, uh, all sorts of big events in the, in the turn of the, of, the, of the year. With these tombs, it was almost certainly the same. They were a focal point for a scattered community, and they would go there at certain times, sometimes all together as a group, sometimes just on their own as individuals, uh, you know, wanting maybe time to commune with the ancestors, to maybe pray to a higher God, all the sorts of things that people go to a cathedral or to a church for. There's certainly a burial aspect to these tombs, West Kennet included. Uh, archaeologists found inside West Kennet the remains of 46 individuals, adult men and women, uh, they weren't buried in there. You're not dealing with people in their own individual plots or in their own individual graves. The internal structure of West Kennet is a, a passage uh, with two chambers either side 
and one chamber at the end of the passage. And this, these chambers are built of the, some of the local sarsen stone, uh, which is a local raw material of that area, and also some limestone that had been imported from probably as far away as Bath and was, was incorporated into the structure. So this is inside the mound. You've got this passageway with, with chambers off of it. And the, the bones are grouped together in piles. So pe- people aren't there as individuals. They're not there as your mum, your dad, your brother. When the, when the body, when someone died, uh, it seems that the, the body was left somewhere to decay. P- possibly in the chamber, possibly in the passageway, or maybe somewhere outside. And then after the processes of decomposition had taken place and the flesh was, was largely gone, picked up by animals and birds and all the rest of it, Bones are gathered together and they're taken into the tomb. And there they are mixed together with the bones of the people that are already there. Other men, other women. And it looks as if there was a a, a conscious decision to, rather than have individuals in the tomb, it's a sort of collective body of the ancestors. As each one dies, it's like a drop of water getting dropped into a glass of water. You know, they become part of the, the whole. The tomb was open, uh, it was, so people were coming and going, and it, it looks almost certain that from time to time some of the bones were taken out, taken elsewhere. Uh, maybe you would go in and collect some of the bones of the ancestors and take them outside for a ceremony or for a ritual, and then, and then the bones would come back in. West Kennet seems to have been open, open for business if you like, via its entrance, uh, for a maybe two or three generations. It's hard to be to be certain. It was built, uh, well, you would say in the middle of the fourth millennium BC. So let's say, for the sake of argument, around 3,500 years BC. And once the passage was there, the chambers were there, and the, the whole mound was extended over the top of it, people were coming and going from the interior with bones and to do other things for two, three, four generations. And it's only an estimate. And c- clearly, given that there are, when archaeologists excavated it, they only found 46 individuals, it's obviously not the village cemetery. It's not where everyone ended up when they died. The majority of the dead must have been dealt with elsewhere. And we don't know. Maybe they were maybe the bodies were just left in a special area, but just to be, you know, picked over by animals and birds and scattered. Or maybe they were buried, or maybe they were cremated. We don't know for certain. But in some kind, almost like an editing process, the community seemed to have taken decisions about what individual would have the honour or the privilege, I suppose, of being in the tomb. And, and maybe it was a, maybe it was somebody who was very brave, or maybe a man who was very long-lived. Uh, maybe it was a woman who had had lots of children, you know, and had been very fertile. Maybe it was somebody who was considered to be very wise. Only certain people were kept and put into the tomb. And again, why those decisions were made to keep certain people and not others, that's another of those things that we aren't able to uh, divine. We don't know why that was. So the tomb was open for business. And then for some other reason, people decided, or a generation decided, to close the tomb. And it was ceremonially blocked. Massive 
Sarsen blocks, huge boulders from nearby, were hauled and dragged to the entrance and then they were put across the entrance. So it was shut. It was closed now. A decision was taken and once that place was closed, it was never opened again. It was, it was closed once and for all and it remained closed then. And obviously down through the years people have, you know, tomb raiders have gone in and interfered with it and have gone inside it. And In the modern era, archaeologists have excavated it, but it, for the Neolithic farmers who built it around 3,500 years BC, they were finished with it. That they, they had no more use for it, or they certainly didn't have any more use for the inside. Maybe they kept on visiting it as a shape in the landscape, but they were no longer coming and going uh, to the interior. So it's a place of questions. It's a place, in many cases, of mysteries. You know, you want why? Why did they build it in the first place? Why did they build it where they did? How did they make the decisions about who was whose bones were being incorporated inside? Why did they decide to close it? What happened? What decision was taken where they said, right, we're not going to we're not going to come and go from the tomb anymore. We're going to block the entrance. There are so many unknowables, uh, but it begs consideration uh, and and you're left to wonder and there are as I say there are at least 200 in the Cotswold Severn group and there are there are something of the order of 30 or 40,000 chamber tombs in Western Europe they're they're not just in Britain Uh, this tradition of building stone buildings to contain some of the remains of the dead uh, it, it started in Southern Europe the oldest of them are in Spain and then up through France, they started building them in Spain maybe 4,500 years BC. So the oldest ones in Spain are maybe a thousand years older than West Kennet. And then it, it spread up through France and then into uh, into the British Isles. And eventually they're in places like Holland and Sweden. They spread right around a, a broad uh, swatch of territory r- r- across the sort of Atlantic facade of Europe. Okay, so up through Spain. France, into Britain, and then up into the Low Countries in Scandinavia. These chamber tombs in Western Europe are are some of the oldest stone buildings in the world. They're some of the oldest stone buildings on planet Earth. The oldest, the oldest deliberately raised stone structures are at Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Uh, they're eight, nine, ten thousand years BC. Incredibly old raised stones, uh, but but the next oldest are the chamber tombs of of Western Europe. You know they're from they're from they're right at the beginning of human beings anywhere deciding to raise permanent structures using stone. So they represent a complete revolution, really, in the way people are thinking about the landscape. Imagine that for millions of years. And, and, then, and certainly for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings of one sort or another were walking around the planet. Well, it, it, it's only relatively recently that any of them had the idea to start building stone structures. All the time we were hunters, it just didn't happen. With farming, what archaeologists call the, the Neolithic Revolution, this, this decision to be in one place, have fields and domesticated animals and live like that, that, that revolution sparked off all sorts of ideas in people's heads and they began thinking about the landscape differently. They began looking at the sky. Uh, they began noticing the, the repeating patterns of planets and the moon and the sun. 
West Kennet is orientated east to west, just like a Christian church is. And the main, the main entrance of West Kennet faces east, just as the main entrance of any Christian cathedral or any Christian church does. They face the, the direction of the rising sun. So there's, there's an extraordinary continuity in the human experience of that idea of acknowledging the rising sun. And so West Kennet points towards its entrance faces the rising sun because the sun will always have suggested to people the return of warmth, the return of light, the return of life. It's, it's symbolic, it always has been symbolic of everything that makes life possible. And just as Westminster Abbey points at the rising sun, so does the entrance of West Kennet. When did farming begin and the desire for permanent tombs and structures take hold? When people come up with farming, when they, when they, when they first experiment with domesticated crops and domesticated animals, that happens in the, in the Middle East. Uh, the Levant, Mesopotamia, so countries like Iran, Iraq, Turkey, Syria. Farming starts there about 10,000 years ago. And then over the next several thousand years, it, it gradually travels into the West. And it, it either travels because people are moving, maybe in search of new land to cultivate, or maybe it's just the ideas. Maybe if you're living next door to people who are farming, you pick up the technology and then, then it spreads from you to the next person without actually people moving. It might just be the idea that moves. But over a period of about four or five or 6,000 years, the, the idea of farming spreads all the way across the, the long European continent. But, but when it comes to Spain, Western Spain, Western France, the British Isles, that's the end of the line. You can't, until, until the Vikings or Christopher Columbus found a way across the Atlantic to the New World, that was the end of the line. Uh, and it, it looks as though when, the, when that technology took root in the West, on what archaeologists have sometimes called the Atlantic facade, the Atlantic edge, all sorts of ideas seemed to, to, to germinate and, and come to fruition. And that it's in Western Spain that people started building these tombs. And then that, that idea seems to have caught on and gradually spread north through France. And then comes up and then it's in the British Isles and Ireland. And then it keeps on spreading north. All these farming communities got into the business of, of building these things. So it's, so it's a combination of the location, that, that part of the world, that part of the landscape, and it's also the way in which being responsible for your fields and being responsible for your animals seemed to make people feel that they were now owners. They were owners of the world. They were owners of the landscape, owners of the fields. And they were, and they were putting their marks on it. You know, like human beings do. It's, you, know, you know, like graffiti. I was, I was here. You know, when people are feel that they own somewhere, often with that comes a, a, a responsibility or an obligation or just a determination to stamp your mark on it so that the next person that comes along knows who it belongs to. Have any artefacts been found here? Yes, absolutely. Some pottery has been found in it, 
Uh, you quite often at West Kennet and others of the Cotswold Severn group, you find uh, animal bones uh, at the entrances quite often. Uh, so that may be to do with, you know, sacrifice. It could be that people are cooking food and making some kind of offering to the ancestors, to the spirits. So they're, they're bringing a bit like a kind of a Thanksgiving, you could say, you know, they're, where they're bringing some of the products of the fertile land to, to the ancestors and offering it up. Uh, and these, the tombs, West Kennet and the rest, they have always attracted, you know, grave robbers, and tomb raiders, uh, you know, people, you know, from the from the Vikings onwards, and no doubt earlier than that and later, were digging holes in them, breaking their way into the into the passages and chambers. And if there was anything there that caught their eye, a bit of gold jewellery, a, a beautifully made arrowhead, no doubt those things got taken out long ago. So when archaeologists look at them in a, in a sort of a modern scientific way, they can only hope to find whatever the grave robbers overlooked. You know, they have been picked out and, and the, it, in general terms, the, the human bones were left behind. Maybe out of superstition, you know, maybe when people broke in and they found the bones of the dead, they, p- people can, it, we understand that, feeling a bit strange around human skulls and bones. So they, you know, they left them, uh, but anything else, no doubt, was was ferreted away long ago. How important is this site to our understanding of the Neolithic in the British Isles, and what does it mean to you? I I am drawn to these places, and obviously there's a there's a much wider, a, a very obvious context within which a site like West Kennet has to be considered. You know, from West Kennet you can see Silbury Hill, for example, which is the largest uh, prehistoric uh, man-made mound in Europe. It's huge. It it sits on a footprint of about six acres. It's 130 feet tall. It's as big as some of the earliest pyramids. Obviously it lacks the architectural sophistication of a pyramid, but in terms of the, the the vaulting ambition and the desire to create something massive, you know, Silbury Hill is is a considerable construction, would have taken tens of thousands of hours of work by many, many people. You can see it from West Kennet. And you're in the vicinity at West Kennet of Stonehenge. Avebury's not so very far away. So they all provide the context for one another. So while any one individual site like West Kennet is fascinating in its own right. You have to remember to kind of stop and look around and be aware that they're they're within a whole ritual landscape. You're walking through a landscape that that four, five thousand years ago, the farmers were altering, modifying and shaping in a way that made sense to them. So they were building tombs for the dead, but those tombs definitely would have served other purposes than just treating the dead. They were raising circles of stone, uh, great avenues of stone that link one place with another. Uh, they built uh, archaeological sites uh, called cursus, which are, uh, in some instances, there's sets of parallel ditches two miles long running beside one another, viewed from high above, viewed from an aircraft. They look like like, like elongated running tracks. Uh, they're called the Cursus, and you know they're in that landscape as well. So it's always important to see somewhere like West Kennet as, as a part 
of a much bigger picture. And the explanation for any one of them will be and is part of the explanation for the whole the whole creation. Because that, that landscape was being modified and built upon generation after generation, century after century, by these farmers who were asking questions of the universe and seeking answers. And some of these structures that they raised were, 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 were parts of them expressing how they understood the universe and their place within it. What would the natural landscape have been like? Would it have been heavily forested? Probably not. From excavations of the vicinity of West Kennet, the building of that tomb wasn't the first human activity there. Uh, there's already evidence of farming activity older than West Kennet. So before the tomb was built, there were already people making use of that landscape for farming. And there would have been more in the way of trees, I suppose, but it's probably not very accurate to imagine thick forest. You know, there might have been open woodland, you know, trees dotted about in the landscape and, and gradually, as, as the farmers uh, cultivated more and more of the landscape, there would have been fewer and fewer trees, certainly. Uh, and, and to begin with, you know, there's always been theories that places like Stonehenge, uh, the Great Henge monuments, the big circular structures that are made either of ditches with banks or circles of stone or combinations of the two, there have always been uh, archaeological interpretations of those as being, as having started out possibly as clearings. So in, in a landscape that was quite wooded, there may have been natural clearings uh, or, or clearings that hunters had made because clearings attract animals. Animals are attracted to deer and the rest are attracted to where the new grass and new shoots come in a clearing. So you've got, you've got somewhere you can go to hunt because animals will tend to be there. So the hunters may have opened up these first clearings and then gradually the, all the trees are gone as the, as the farmers domesticate the whole landscape. But there may have been a memory of the first clearings and those first clearings may have served other purposes. You know, the, the, the hunters and some of the first farmers may have used those clearings for gatherings. It, it would be a natural place for, for people to come together in numbers and then after all the trees are gone, people might still have remembered where the clearings were and may have recreated the look of the clearing by building, first of all, circles of, of timber posts. Because all these places like Stonehenge and, and the rest of the stone circles, they're usually predated by a circle made of timber posts. And so the first of it may have been people recreating the missing clearings. And then after more time passes, and maybe the most timber posts rot and fall down, people decide to replace them with something more permanent. So instead of wooden posts, you get yourself some tall upright stones and you put them in a circle. But it, it might still be a, a conscious uh, remembering of a circular clearing in the woodland where the ancestors used to go and light fires and tell stories and maybe perform rituals and ceremonies to do with their lives and that generations later people still wanted to go to the same place so now they, first of all they mark it with a circle of posts and then after that they replace, they replace the posts with a circle of stones 
That's that's a that's a that's a process that goes on to this day. You know, if you go into a graveyard where someone has been recently buried, usually their grave is marked with a wooden cross. But it's only temporary, and it gives the family time to organise a permanent stone headstone. And so, in time, the wooden cross is, is set aside and it's replaced with a stone. So that that process of working first of all in timber and then replacing it in stone is something that's happening today. And so it was then. In all cases, uh, the, the tombs, uh, the henge monuments, the, the, the mound like Silbury Hill, these are places where people are saying, this place is important. Uh, uh, you know, there's, there's the wider landscape, but there are certain places maybe associated long ago with an action by an individual, a, a battle, a death, a burial, who knows? But people decide that there are certain places that they will remember. And in order to remember, they put something there as a marker, possibly a tomb with some bones of ancestors, possibly a circle, something you can find so that you can tell people, I'll meet you at midsummer in the circle. And you know that people will go there. And that kind of setting aside of, of special places would matter for uh, communities that are living quite scattered lives. You know, you're talking about tiny populations in, in England, in Scotland, by our standards, a few thousand people, and they're living in farming communities. And for most of the year, they're, they're probably just themselves. But you, you can't live like that. There are come, there come points in the, in the year or, or in, in a lifetime when you need uh, husbands for your daughters, you need wives for your sons, you need new tools. What are you going to do? Well, it helps a great deal if you know that there are certain places in the landscape where every year, maybe in midsummer, everyone gathers. So you think, well, we'll go there when, this, when the sun is high and the days are, are long and the nights are short. We'll go to that place where there's the mound or the circle and we're guaranteed to meet people. And we'll find partners for our children and we'll get more raw material for tools, we'll get clay pots. You know, we can trade, we can do all the things that people do when they get together. You know, so, so these places like the tombs, like the circles, it's social media. You know, you, you know where people are. You can find people on Facebook, you can find people on Twitter. Well, five, six, seven thousand years ago, people knew that they could go there and meet people. That's what it's always been about. People need places where they know people will gather and they can go and get in among them. And, and perhaps more than anything else, that's what places like West Kennet mean. They're memorable, visible places in the landscape where people know other people will go at certain times of the year. How did they bring people together? When, when people are scattered through the landscape, they need reasons to come together, and those would be rituals and ceremonies. You know, so maybe in midsummer and midwinter, times of the year that everyone can recognise because of the sky. And then you need a location. It's not enough just to have a time. You know, you need to be able to say, to know, we will meet again at that place at that time. That's an ancient need. And there are many overlapping uh, ways in which it hasn't changed so very, very much. People just set aside places where they know people will go. People have always done that. People still do. 
When you visit West Kennet, can you still sense the history there? I can, but then I'm, I, I chose aged 17 to study archaeology. You know, something in my wiring or my DNA, it, it, you know, it makes me, I'm sort of predestined to be attracted to certain places. That's in my nature. So I can only really answer that question by saying what it does for me. But when you go to some, when I go to somewhere like West Kennet, when you, you can get, it's been opened up now, you can go in, you know, you can get past the entrance, it's not blocked up anymore, you can, you can step into the passage, and the passage is big, uh, you can, you can walk, you know, standing upright into West Kennet, the chambers, two either side and one at the end, these are small, and, and to get into them, you have to, you know, get down on your hands and knees, and crawl into these quite confined spaces, but you can get in, uh, and it, maybe it was un, maybe it was done deliberately. Maybe the architects wanted people to go into where the ancestors were on their hands and knees, show a bit of respect, you know, lower yourself down when you're going to go in. So that might have been deliberate. Imagine what it would have been like when the when the body when the bones were in there. The place would have been filled with the smell, the stench of death. Stronger at different times of the year, and when when a body had recently been, when the bones had recently gone in. Now we've got no way of knowing if that was a smell that horrified those people, or if it caused some other sort of emotion for them. We cannot know. They they lived lives surrounded by slaughtered animals and a whole world of smells that, and and of each other, unwashed bodies. Uh, they would have had different sensitivities. But imagine you're, you'd be walking into this this fog of, you know, of, of the decomposing dead. And if, if you believed, if you truly believed that you were walking into the presence of the ancestors, that if you believed that you were walking into a space where the ancestors were still present and conscious, you know, surely the hairs would have gone up on the back of your neck and you would have willingly got down on your hands and knees in some fear and certainly some respect, knowing that you were surrounded invisibly by the dead, those who had lived before. Imagine what emotions and feelings such a place might have inspired in the, in the farmers that at certain times of the year ventured into that space. It's powerful, powerful magic. Some 5,000 years ago, building began. Work that would lead to a monument that is still famous around the world. A powerful place that tracks the light and marks the seasons. And it's still revealing its hidden secrets to this day. Next time, in my love letter to the British Isles. To ensure you get each new episode of this podcast as it goes live, don't forget to subscribe, write a review and share it with your friends. You can follow in my footsteps as my journey unfolds across these aisles of ours by going to my podcast's Instagram account, Neil Oliver Love Letter, and seeing the places I've chosen. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, You could try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. 
Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. The music is by Malcolm Goldie. Additional research was by Oscar, Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance was taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production was at Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production.